Yeah, thank you for gathering us together to hear this specific word. We, we really believe that it's no accident that we are here to hear this. And let it be a timely message for Grace International Church and uh, those who are visiting us today also, that they will uh, be able to draw from this message. Lord, we can go astray by not following this word. And that's why we are so strong in the scriptures. And we just pray that you keep us accurate. And uh, bless Pastor Andes now with this gift with the message that he has for us. In Jesus' name we all pray. Amen. 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 Thank you. Thank you very much, Robert. Um, morning, everyone. It's great to see some people I haven't seen for some time. It's great always to welcome uh, those who are new for the first time today. Welcome. My name is Andis, and I'm one of the teaching elders uh, here. Please, please do keep 1 Timothy 4 open as if we're going to um, not really do verse by verse, but we'll, we'll spend a lot of time in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Uh, our theme today, I'm not, I don't know whether you noticed uh, a sort of a theme that went through verses uh, 1 to 11 in chapter 4, but our theme today is Christians' relationships with this creation. What Christians may enjoy in this creation, uh, and even if they may enjoy it, should they? Well, the governing principle of the scriptures and indeed of this passage, is don't deny the good gifts of this creation, but don't be consumed by the pursuit of them as the end of themselves. But before I state the precise problem I think we are looking at in today's passage, I want to take a moment to exercise some pastoral sensitivity around the subject. It is because we, are, we come from so so many different places and so many different backgrounds, um, both at social, spiritual backgrounds. A little while ago, I met an Indian student for a dinner. We were going to meet at this burger place, and I thought, right, it's, it's running late, so it's to save some time, I'm going to order you know, the burgers before, so that we arrive, they're, they're basically arriving. And, and so, um, as I was going to do that, I thought, you know, of course I'm going to go for the best, for the best of the big, bad, beef burger. You know, these are the best. And what I learned later was, um, and I'm glad I didn't actually, but what I learned later was that this big, bad, beef burger is not really the first dish that people in India go for, because... If you're caught in with, with a big burger in India, some places, that, that's what I'm told, you can actually go to prison. I mean, can you, can, can you even be executed on the spot in India? You can be lynched. Okay, right, so uh, even what, the, I'm glad we are in Latvia. Uh, anyways, so that's what I learned, and that's why I want to be sensitive, because although the governing principle of scriptures is don't deny the good gifts of this creation, Paul demonstrates elsewhere that being sensitive to others' um, conscience is, is very, very important. Just hear the verse from Romans 14. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ 
dies. So Paul wants to exercise a sort of sensitivity around various subjects like food. But having said that, the problem with 1 Timothy 4 is somewhat opposite. There are some who are not content simply with skipping beef burger or, or pork barbecue for the reasons of their personal conscience. Instead, they turn their personal belief about the things into law that should be laid down um, um, for, for people um, as a genuine mark of being a Christian. And I think that is something that we start to see more clearly in 1 Timothy uh, 4, as we keep asking the question, what was really going on in this church around the whole subject of false teaching? Now, if you were here last week and, and some of the previous weeks, um, Paul has said that godliness isn't about me, okay? It's not about my performance. Mystery of godliness is no mystery at all. He, the incarnate, crucified, risen, and ascended Christ, Son of God, is the mystery of godliness. Obviously, Paul felt a need to emphasize that. But why? Well, because of the false teaching in the church of Ephesus that has crept into it. Now, you might remember in chapter 1, Paul described it as being contrary to the sound doctrine and contrary to the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. And we saw that this false teaching had something to do with the way that the law was used. It was used wrongly. Apparently Paul doesn't regard this matter as you know, an opinion someone might have and that can be easily dismissed. Paul sees it as a spiritual warfare, rather, that has to be waged. Now, if one's faith should not be wrecked, uh, you know, like, like a ship. And so this is something that Timothy has to fight for in Ephesus. Again, in chapter 1 we saw. So what should we be on the lookout as we read 1 Timothy 4? We should look out for any teaching that either subtracts from or adds to the work of God in Jesus. Thus robbing God of the glory that he deserves. And that is what the Holy Spirit is on a lookout in this passage. So, so firstly we're going to look at, at the principle of don't deny the good gifts of this creation. And that's what the Holy Spirit really cares for. Just glance at verse 1 of chapter 4. Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith. And we shouldn't be surprised that the Spirit does the speaking. After all, He is the truth revealer who enlightens the eyes of our hearts, who makes God's truth to us plain and precious. Hear how Jesus spoke about the Spirit's work in John 16. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you, the apostles, into all the truth, for he will not speak of on, it, on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you 
the things that are to come. He will glorify my name, for he will take what is mine and declare to you. So we shouldn't be surprised that Spirit does the speaking. He does that. He speaks with all the authoritative voice of God to point to the apostasy of some people. And when the Spirit speaks, it always speaks today. So when what Paul says in later times, it's not some distant future, sometime, you know, in, in years to come. No, it's today. The whole period between the first and second coming of Jesus is later times, and it's always today. Um, it could be that Paul now, when he's talking about you know, some who, who fall away, he has in mind these two guys that, whom, whom we already know, Hymenaeus and Alexander. After all, Paul already stated that they have rejected faith, thus wrecking it like a ship on the rocks. But what I think Paul does now, he, he, he grants us a little more clearer insight in what was going on with Hymenaeus and Alexander and, and some others. That's what I think Paul does. So what what happened? What happened with those guys? Look again in verse one. They devoted themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Well simply put, behind every deception stands Satan himself. That's why Paul has previously said that he has handed them over to Satan, back into the world, in the realm that where Satan is, is somewhat in charge. Just to be clear, the whole Satan teaching demon thing is not some mystical medieval orgy, you know, like drinking cat's blood or something. No, it's more sane. It's more sane and it's more subtle than that. Otherwise, how come people are deceived so easily? How come? In every age? Well, the answer is in verse 2. Hey, because Satan works through the insincere lies of the insensitive false teachers. 2 Timothy gives us a bit more insight into their portrait. But perhaps the key to their deceptive success amongst people is that they have the appearance of godliness. They look right. They even sound right. But they deny its power. So what did they teach? The subtlety of their deception was in that they didn't deny Jesus at all. So we think, you know, they're flat out Jesus deniers. Kind of. But no. In fact, they're the thing that they didn't have any, I think they didn't have any problems with 3.16. Do you want to glance back at 3.16? They didn't have any problems with Jesus being manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by the angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. They didn't have any problems with none of these things around Jesus. Okay? It appears the false teachers in Ephesus Church claim, though, that they have discovered the mystery of godliness apart from God, what God has revealed in Jesus. 
in the observance of law. So Jesus plus the law. Specifically, it is called asceticism. Do, do we understand what asceticism means? Here's the most simplest definition. Asceticism is a severe self-discipline avoiding all forms of indulgence, typically for religious reasons. Indeed, asceticism appears to be at the heart of what's going on in the church in Ephesus and in the false teaching there. Some were teaching that the mystery of godliness is found apart from God's revealed will in Christ, namely in the law and in doing some of these things that the law says. Jesus is all good. If you aspire to real godliness, though, verse 3, you shouldn't get married, okay? If you want to be really godly, don't consider marrying. Or eating, eating meat on Friday. Says someone, perhaps, to a young recruit training to become a priest in a Roman Catholic church today. You don't, don't get married. The priest, really holy people don't get married. And, and, and really careful with meat, and specifically on Fridays. So, why is, why is the spirit so bothered? Why is Paul so cross about these things? Surely we see how someone who is single can devote his time and energy and attention and a lot of resources more freely uh, to the service of the Lord than the married ones. And I think we often observe that that's true. Okay? And surely there is a great value in exercising wisdom uh, when we think about what we eat and what's, you know, what's good for us and what's bad for us, right? And indeed, indeed there, there, there might be instances where marriage is simply impossible. After all, marriage is the gift of God. Uh, Paul refers to that in 1 Corinthians. Or where some foods have to be avoided for health reasons. It's just not wise to continue eating this thing if it makes you constantly sick and you can't serve the Lord. It's wise to avoid these things, of course. However, when these things are put down as a religious rule that's going to bring you closer to God, Paul is up and putting all this armor on and he's ready to fight. Why? Essentially, the false teaching was an attack on God's creation. Did you notice these two things, marriage and food, both in the Garden of Eden, right? So that's an attack on God's creation. And when it's an attack on God's good creation and the gifts, it's an attack on God, the Creator Himself. So, ditch marriage or sex within marriage, as Paul confronts Corinthians about some error. Or ditch pork and you will be more godly. You'll, you'll join the, the, the godly huddle. Finally, is the teaching which Paul eagerly opposes. The sooner we see that it wasn't something just for the first century, that it's alive and kicking today, the better it is for us. A number of years ago, um, I, I was part of this group that was led by this 
hugely charismatic person with an itch for the holiness teaching. Um, there were some, some good things, some sincere things about it, but you know what? In the end of the day, I felt and what I thought is that godliness is all about what I do. It's all about my performance. So if you ditch TV and movies, you are more, more holy and acceptable to God than if you, do, if you don't. Send girls for beer or wine. You're more holy if you abstain from these things completely. Then you're more pleasing to God. And I don't think this holy cuddle was um, altogether healthy. No, it wasn't. It was a weird kind of asceticism. <clears throat> a deceptive and demonic teaching also can be wrapped up in a super nice, less intense packaging. Now, I was thinking of an example, is there any in nowadays? And then I remember there is. I'm not sure whether you come across this big Bible course called Daniel Fast. It's nothing to do with Daniel here, okay? Don't look at Daniel. It's, um, it's, it's a Bible course called Daniel Fast. It comes from the, the book of Daniel, chapter 1, where Daniel shows his loyalty to, to Yahweh, to God, to the common Lord, by refusing the goodies from the Babylonian king's table. Okay? He has his reasons. But the Bible course guys thought, right, let's make a nice business thing out of it, out of this verse from Daniel. And what they did, they called this course Deepening Your Relationships with God. Okay? Well, it is not bad to prioritize your relationships with God over the many pleasures of food and drink. You know, in some points of our lives. If we feel, I mean, you know, we're really paying too much attention to food and kind of eating too much, we can decide for personal reasons, right? Let me skip a meal and rather read Bible. And that's all right. But that's not what these guys are saying. Deepen your relationships with God. When it's turned into the rule, when it's turned into the works that earn the brownie points with God, then Paul is putting his armor on. He's ready to fight. And so should we. The problem of Daniel fast is that people take something that is purely descriptive. That's what happened with this man of God in the Babylonian exile. And they make it descriptive. Sorry, prescriptive. That's what you should do if you want to be a truly God-pleasing Christian. Right, what is the right response? if that's not the right response. God's at verse 3, giving thanks to God the Creator is the right response. See, that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the Word of God and prayer. So friends, giving thanks to God for the good gifts of this creation is a proof that a person is a believer, that a person knows the truth. 
What does giving of, of thanks achieve? It's simply, um, as opposed to ritual purity that we might think, it simply acknowledges that everything comes from God. These good creation gifts come from God. Can good gifts of creation, can, can they be abused? Of course they can be abused. Everything can be abused. Every day we see or we read about how, how sex, food and drink are being abused, and sadly sometimes in the church. But that doesn't mean God has stopped being good creator who's giving good gifts. It only means that people are self-seeking, self-centered, self-pleasing creatures. That's the only thing that it means. <coughs> right, let, let us quickly summarize where we've got so far so that we can move on. Uh, Paul is keen that those who are Christians wouldn't get carried away by the demonic asceticism teaching which deny the good gifts of this creation, sex within marriage and food, but would give thanks to God for being a good creator, God who gives good gifts to his loved ones. Now, now friends, I have no idea about what sort of questions are going through your mind as you're listening. And maybe jot down some of these questions and ask me afterwards, or after you know, we have coffee after the service. But it may just be that you feel a little uneasy about some of these things. Like, did Andes really just went after the asceticism teaching of the Roman Catholic Church? Or the holiness teaching of, of Christian, of charismatic church? Or the veggie diet mumbo jumbo fetish teaching of the progressives, you know, Daniel, Daniel, um, Diet. Well, yes, in fact, I did. I'm sorry. No, I'm not. I'm not sorry. <laughs> because I believe that it is something that Paul expects from Timothy. In fact, actually, Paul commands Timothy to do that. Look at verse 11. First, command and teach these things. And verse 6, if you put these things before the brothers and sisters, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of good doctrine that you have followed. So I want to be a good servant of Christ Jesus. But notice Timothy is not engaging, quarreling with words about verse 7, irrelevant and silly myth. That's not what Paul expects from him. No, instead, Timothy is to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and he is to be a good servant of Christ Jesus. Paul is sure that Timothy has been, verse 6, nourished up. If you have, I'm not sure which word you have, ESV has trained, but literally, nourished up, you know, being well fed and built by this food, the solid food of the Gospel by his grandma, and later by Paul himself. And now he has to put this nutritious spiritual food before the church. And I think in the second half, Paul goes for the second principle. Don't be consumed by the pursuit of God's good gifts of creation. Don't deny them. Don't deny them. They're good. 
but don't don't be completely consumed by them. But how is Timothy going to be able to carry on doing it? He has to become a training pastor. Verse 7, part of verse 7. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. So, excuse me, so command is clear from Paul, train. And this train word is different from the previous nourished up. This train word is more athletic, it's, it's gymnasoi. That's where uh, I, the, the word that, that gym comes from in, in English language. Train, be athletic about it. Timothy put in hard work and sweat in growing in godliness. Meaning, pleasing devotion to God. Really work hard on this. And, and Paul says that's what he does, verse 10. Toil and strive. Apparently, it doesn't happen naturally by itself. But why? Why train? Why put sweat and hard work in training in godliness? Two principles. Two reasons, actually. First, because godliness holds the promise of infinite value. The bodily training, gymnasium, is only of some value. There is a bit of bodily training that really exceeds its usefulness. Think about this. It may boost your self-confidence, various forms of bodily training. And it might even add some seconds to our 70, 80 year long lives in this world, okay? Maybe. Be it a veggie diet, or for guys pumping iron in the gym, or perfecting pilates for ladies, or drinking soy latte for everyone, or cabbage juice. Is, is that your thing? Cabbage juice, no? Celery juice is, is a better option, yes, of course. Um, some value, but really some. In other words, it is possible to take the good gifts of this creation and use them in the way that, um, as, as, as if our whole life depends on them, as if our identity, value, and everything depends on them. That's not right. It can effectively become the worship of food, fitness, diet, food and drink, sex, nature, wealth, and just continue the list. And that, of course, is a form of deception, too, because the end of bodily training, who can guess what is the end of bodily training? Is exactly six feet under the ground. Anyway, either way, that's the end of bodily training, guys. Of course, this tooth can be really used in manipulative ways, too. I hear, I hear this verse is very popular amongst the husbands when prompted by their wives to do some physical exercise. Darling, do you not know what Paul wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 4? Bodily training is only of some value. So get lost, get lost. You know, I'm going to read my Bible. Well, 
and he doesn't do that either. Well, it, it's plain laziness, isn't it? It's just plain laziness. Nevertheless, Paul, Paul's trustworthy saying stands. It stands. Godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Godliness, the relationships with God through Jesus start now and continue in eternity. The gospel holds the promise of infinite value. That's why Paul says, train, train yourself in godliness. And this train yourself in godliness. Andres, train yourself in godliness. And brothers and sisters, train, train yourselves in godliness. If indeed the church is to be the display of the glorious gospel of Jesus, a pillar and buttress of the truth, in this world, the church has to train herself in godliness, toil, strive. The Grace Church has to be a training church. Is that how we always think about ourselves, our Christian life? Well, it will depend on our perspective, won't it? If, if Christianity is all about this life, then probably we're not thinking a lot about training in godliness. But if godliness, as we shall see, and we already saw, is, is the promise for eternity, it's of infinite value, then we will. If godliness is not, as, as we'll see later in 1 Timothy, just the means for gain in this life, but of infinite value, then we will train ourselves in godliness. Paul says godliness is it's about something entirely different. And the second reason for training in godliness is because of its destination. Not six feet underground, but the third heaven, or simply put, where God is, you know, it's the first heaven where the birds fly, you know, where you just wave them, the second heaven where Yuri Gagari said there is no God, because he didn't see him, if you take his helmet off he would see him, <laughs> but the third heaven is, is where, where God is, where God is, so because of its destination we toil and strive in godliness. So again, what we've seen in chapter 1 so far, on one hand, is Christians have to reject any teaching that denies the good gifts of this creation, because such teaching rejects the Creator God. Instead, everything created by God is to be received with thanksgiving. That's the first thing. But on the other hand, Christians, they shouldn't be consumed by the pursuit of of these gifts as the end of themselves because of their limited value instead everything create what well, sorry just give the line instead Christians should be trained train themselves in godliness because of its infinite value and its destination heaven 
Now, around Friday, around Friday lunch, I thought I could actually finish here. It's quite good. No, I didn't. Um, it's quite, I said, it's quite ready, kind of ready. But then, but then this kind of kept disturbing me, kept bugging me, because I realized I hadn't said like absolutely nothing about the verse then, especially of the second half of it. I didn't know quite what to do with it. But as I kept mulling over it in the light of the passage, and indeed in the light of 1 Timothy, it dawned on me that verse 10 actually ties everything together and gives Paul's message a purpose, a direction. Verse 10, for to this end we toil and strive that we already had, because we have set our hope on the living God, yes, we've heard that, who is the saviour of all people, especially of those who believe. That's the part that was really unclear to me for some time. Now, Paul clearly thinks that the godly living of the church adorns the gospel, right? We already saw that. And thus attracts people to God, who is the saviour of all people. But what does the application of this truth, big truth, look like in the context of our passage today? Specifically, how does the Christian treatment of God's good gifts of this creation bears witness to all people whose saviour is God? That's the specific question we need to be asking. So here are my, my five cents or three to five minutes or so. Uh, the way Christians treat God's good creation gifts must point all people to the giver and the preserver of life of all people. So let's take in turn these two creation gifts and think how might our Christian views of them be, be missional in that sense, okay? So in regard to food and drink, I think as simple as giving thanks for these gifts in the presence of non-Christian people opens the door to reality where everything we enjoy in this life comes from God. It's such a simple thing. To be honest, I sometimes forget to do that in our extended family gatherings. But our children are often pedantic about it. Are we not giving thanks? Are we not giving thanks? And so we sing and so we do give thanks. But also in the way we in the way we treat those things, uh, in, in the way we receive or reject food or drink. It, it also says, communicates something. Now, when I was a pastor in the Baptist denomination a good number of years ago, I respected the Baptist official stance in Latvia on, on the drink. So it's um, complete abstinence from alcohol in the Baptist denomination, okay? But it didn't help in my extended family gatherings. A few of my relatives thought that something clearly is wrong with me. You know, 
that I can't have a glass of wine or half glass of wine at the dinner table with my, my non-believing family. They thought something was wrong with my head. And I will never forget this first time. So I was already, um, I was away from the Baptist denomination, and I did this funeral for, um, uh, for my extended family, very distant relative, with, with them, them present. And afterwards, you know, I felt really free to have a half glass of wine with a sausage or something, and the result was unbelievable. They suddenly, they suddenly felt that they could talk to me about a lot of things spiritual. They were asking me a lot of in-depth theological questions on the back of the funeral, and of course, on the back of the glass of wine. So, I mean, don't misunderstand me. It's just me. It's descriptive. I'm not putting as it as a rule. I'm merely describing how the use or the rejection of the, the gifts of his creation worked, worked in either way. Now, the food and drink. The second, regard marriage and sex. Now, we know Christian marriage is, and, and indeed sex can be powerful witness to the, the good creator God. So how do non-Christian people perceive marriage, mostly, generally? They perceive it as a, as a waste of paper on which the, 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 the signature, ink, is spilled. You simply just waste it. Where Christians, Christians can model that marriage, the institute, is the institute that points to the good creator God. Indeed, it mirrors God's intent for people and vows that a husband and wife that they take at the wedding of a lifelong, exclusive, faithful relationships with, 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 a, with a flavor of covenant, really. It, it really points out to God's design how God views his people. So marriage, likewise sex, now, people's attitude to sex in this world is generally, we know what. It's of self-gratification, self-fulfillment, self-pleasing, self-serving, etc. Now, Christians here, however, have an opportunity to talk about sex differently. And I'm emphasizing not just married ones, even single ones. Because Paul was single when he confronted Corinthians about, you know, men really neglecting women's needs in the church sexually, and he was single. So, we can actually bear witness that God sees things completely differently. Sex, Christian sex, really is about serving your spouse, meeting the needs of your spouse pleasing your spouse. It's other. It's other-centred. Now, just an example. My non-Christian friend of 25 years got divorced a couple of years ago. So I had an opportunity to talk to him, you know, once in a while to encourage him as a single dad, etc. But just listening to his painful and heartbreaking experience in the light of this passage, made me conclude with a clear mind. Two people joined their lives together 
without any intent to serve God, their creator, without any intent to really serve each other, what did they expect? Now, having said that, our gracious God creator is very, very generous. Because marriage is the institution of this creation. He blesses non-Christian marriages with children, with a lot of other things. Okay? He is a good God. And even non-Christian people can live together till death sets them apart. But the Christian marriage and sex within it can bear a powerful, powerful witness. And it seems to me these are a couple of things that have gone wrong in the Ephesus. It just, friends, reinforces our Christian duty, doesn't it? To toil and strive in godly living so that it would point all people to God, their giver and preserver of life. That is the sense I think Paul uses that saviour of all people here, the giver and preserver of life. And indeed, in very special sense, he is the saviour of those who set their hope on the living God who sent Christ Jesus into the world to save sinners. Let's pray. Rather, train yourself in godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness <laughs> is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Gracious Father, thank you, thank you for making our life in this world actually so enjoyable uh, amongst all the difficulties and struggles that we might have we confess you to be a good god a good creator that, that gives good gifts to his people and indeed to all people father please us uh, reflect help us to meditate on these things as we continue thinking about uh, how we consume and use this world but help us always to give thanks to you but in the same time father help us not to pursue the good gifts of this creation as if our identity value uh, would depend on them please do not do not let us make these good gifts an idol be it food drink sex wealth or whatever rather father please help us grow into a sincere, pure, pure devotion to you in the way we use this world so that it might be a wonderful display to everyone what it means to be Christian in this world so that a lot of people will be pointed to the good creator God, the Savior of all people. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>